Hello, and thank you for joining our Morning Commute podcast series on multiple sclerosis. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. The CME CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ms5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete six-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ms. In this episode, comparing notes on S1P receptor modulators, our experts will discuss the existing and new S1P receptor modulator therapies and current ongoing trials. Particularly, they will delve into what can and cannot be presumed about the comparative efficacy given the absence of head-to-head trials. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Patricia Coyle, the Director of the MS Comprehensive Care Center in the Department of Neurology at Stony Brook University in New York, and by Dr. John Rinker, Associate Professor of Neurology in the Neurology Department at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Coyle will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast, Comparing Notes on S1P Receptor Modulators. John, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Pat. It's good to be here. So let's dive right in. So among our panoply of disease-modifying therapies, 25 distinct agents, including generics covering 10 mechanisms of action, we have several S1P receptor modulators. Um, we have the first uh, in class, fingolimod, and then a number of second generations. So John, let me start by having by hearing your thoughts about the S1P receptor modulator class and just, just mention features of fingolimod and then exactly what second generation S1P receptor modulators we currently have available to us. Sure. So the S1P receptor modulators are an interesting class of medication, partly I think because uh, at least for the time being, I think their only uh, true indication is in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Initially, there was some interest in using them in the transplant medicine world, and there are some ongoing uh, efforts to develop S1P receptor modulators for other autoimmune diseases. Um, But at the moment, uh, we in the multiple sclerosis field probably have the greatest experience um, in using these novel agents. And so the S1P receptor modulators work by an interesting mechanism. They really induce a sort of functional immune suppression without actually um, lysing or uh, having uh, deleterious effects on the bone marrow of the lymphocyte producing um, uh, lineages in in the body. And so the way these medications work is they, they bind to something called the S1P receptor, which is found throughout the body but in particular for MS on the surface of lymphocytes. Once the uh, medication binds to the receptor, it's internalized into the uh, cell body, and this actually prevents the lymphocyte from exiting or regressing from the peripheral lymph nodes. 
the end result being if you, if you do blood samples on patients who are taking these medications, you find that they have very low uh, circulating lymphocyte counts. So in other words, the patients in their circulation have very little of a normal lymphocyte population, and this results in an immune suppression that can be overcome in the setting of an infection, uh, but for the purposes of multiple sclerosis, seems to play an important role in limiting lymphocyte migration into and out of the central nervous system, uh, which is, of course, important for preventing EMS relapses. The first of these medications to be, to be developed was fingolimod, which uh, was approved by the FDA, I believe, back in 2010, and was the first oral medication approved by the FDA for the treatment of relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, or RRMS. And I think since that time, it's become well-established as an important, relatively high-efficacy oral medication that reduces relapse frequency in the relapsing MS population. One of the important characteristics of fingolimod that I think we appreciated early on was that in comparison to one of the established medications, intramuscular interferon beta-1A, it appeared to have superior efficacy at reducing relapses, which made it very appealing for those patients who were enduring muscle fatigue, or excuse me, injection fatigue, and were having breakthrough disease. And so since that time, I think the, the uptake of fingolimod as a disease-modifying therapy has become quite impressive in the MS population, and we're now beginning to see some of the second-generation versions of this uh, class of medicine appear on the scene, medications such as saponamod, ozanamod, and soon, uh, in the near future, probably penesamod. Fingolimod was the first S1P receptor, which, as Dr. Rinker pointed out, had a high efficacy rate of reducing relapse frequency. Drs. Coyle and Rinker look at its mechanism of action and also discuss how second-generation therapies in this class compare. Let's rejoin our discussion. Okay, so, so fingolimod hits S1P receptors 1 and 3, 4, and 5, all, all but S1P receptor 2. Of course, um, the approved second-generation saponamod and ozanamod both hit S1P receptors 1 and 5. And ponesimod, which we do not have approved yet, uh, but is in front of the FDA, hits principally S1P receptor 1. Now, one of the interesting questions is that we think there's a class effect. And we know with regard to the parent or, or first-in-class fingolimod, there are very good things about it, and there were some negative things about it. And I think some of the, the negative things the second generations were trying to address but some of the other negative things, we don't know yet whether the second generation are going to have the exact same things. We assume they are. So let's look at, at PML first. I think in the most recent uh, review, there were 37 cases of PML that could be safely attributed to fingolimod, giving a frequency of about 0.12 cases of PML per thousand. And after a couple of years, maybe going up to 0.13 cases per thousand. So there's a concern that the second generation are going to have risk of PML as well. In addition, there's a minority of individuals that go on, on fingolimod that when you stop it, experience a rebound. This can be particularly bothersome in pregnancy. John, have you faced that issue or had any problems 
uh, with a minority of individuals that may rebound off fingolimod? So I, I haven't in my own practice encountered any patients who had a clear rebound phenomenon from fingolimod. I have, however, had um, at least one patient experience sort of a paradoxical worsening of their disease in the early weeks of initiation of fingolimod. And there have been several case reports of these paradoxical worsening of uh, MS in patients taking an S1P receptor modulator like fingolimod. It's unclear exactly why that happens, um, although there's some speculation that it may have to do um, with differential effects on helper T-cells versus regulatory T-cells uh, and whether the, uh, the regulatory T-cells are being disproportionately affected by the medication. But I have not experienced the rebound phenomenon, um, at least not in my own patient population. Okay. All right. Now, it's interesting that the S1P receptor modulators penetrate into the CNS. And there are S1P receptors within the CNS, but trying to get a handle on do they actually have actions there is difficult. Now, I mentioned that both saponamide and ozonamide, which hit S1P receptor one and five, got rid of S1P receptor three. That's because it's particularly enriched in the cardiac tissue and they hope to get away from the first dose monitoring that is required for fingolimide because of concerns about uh, bradycardia or heart block. And actually, it does seem like there's much less in the way. And for both saponamide and ozonamide, for the most part, they can do away with that first dose monitoring and they dose escalate for the first week. But John, let's turn to, first of all, saponamide, which was the first approved second generation. Tell me about their phase three trial, how you interpreted who you use saponamide in and what you think about it vis-a-vis fingolimod. So I think the saponamide story is quite interesting, not just in the way the study itself was designed, but ultimately how the FDA regarded their results. So the, um, the phase three expand uh, trial, which looked at saponamide um, for clinical efficacy, was really focused on a subset of the MS population that historically has not been the beneficiary of many clinical trials and specifically not a lot of uh, effective clinical trials. And this was the secondary uh, progressive MS population or SPMS. And so in order to study progressive multiple sclerosis, I think an important thing to remember is that one generally doesn't look at relapse rates as the primary endpoint. You have to look instead at disability progression or disability accumulation. Um, Because if you're targeting a progressive disease, which gets worse over months and years, you really need a disability outcome measure more than a relapse rate outcome measure. And so the saponamide trial, EXPAND, designed around this concept, and they indeed were able to show that patients with secondary progressive MS had a reduced risk of disability accumulation uh, in comparison to uh, placebo um, in this particular study. When the FDA reviewed the results, they actually ended up approving the medication, not just for secondary progressive MS, but for all relapsing forms of MS. And that was due to a disproportionate benefit in the subset of patients who 
had evidence of relapses either leading up to or during uh, the secondary progressive trial. And so I think recognizing that even though the drug was developed as a possible treatment for secondary progressive MS, it's still being um, prescribed and, and regarded more for its anti-inflammatory properties than for many neuroprotective ones. And I really think that's very unfortunate. They entered progressing uh, secondary progressive MS. They were able to show a positive benefit on the primary outcome compared to placebo, yet the FDA did not acknowledge that. And they came up with this active SPMS and they didn't even use our determination. Their active was a relapse in the two years prior or enhancement on the entry MRI scan. Uh, for CIS, they hadn't conducted a CIS trial, relapsing remitting. Uh, they had a phase two trial that was, of course, positive, and then active secondary progressive MS. And then they turned to every relapsing DMT just about and said, we'll give you an approval for active SPMS. Well, it was good that they recognized active secondary progressive MS. Maybe if, if they have a relapsing component, should definitely be on a DMT. But I think they did it personally, I think they did a disservice by not approving this for secondary progressive MS. And this is in the setting of Fingolimod had a colossal failure in their phase three trial of primary progressive MS, okay? And they penetrated and they had no impact in slowing progression. But of course, Fingolimod and Saponimod are not the same agent. So I'm wondering, what is the data that Saponimod may penetrate the CNS and, and help decreased neurodegenerative injury. I would love to see them show more data on that sort of thing. Remember, to claim your credit and evaluate this program, visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS5. Doctors Coyle and Rinker continue their discussion of S1P receptor modulators with a look at ozonimod and the newest S1P receptor modulator that is expected to be approved in the not-too-distant future, punosimod. Um, but let's turn to ozanamide. Ozanamide has two phase three trials in relapsing forms of MS. What is your thinking about ozanamide and particular features of that second generation S1P receptor, John? Sure. So um, ozanamide, maybe more so than saponamide, I think really has approached the S1P receptor modulator category not so much to demonstrate superiority to fingolimod, but to um, carve out a niche as a, a better tolerated, easier to initiate, more selective form of S1P receptor modulation. And they were able to demonstrate this through two clinical trials, Radiance and Sunbeam, which ultimately resulted in FDA approval of the medication in March of 2020. And both of these studies compared ozanamod to intramuscular interferon beta-1A, uh, much the same way that the fingolimod pivotal trial had done. And in both cases, they were able to demonstrate reduced annualized relapse rate. Interestingly, when it comes to tolerability, they also were able to show there, there was no symptomatic bradycardia for any of the patients who took the ozanamod, and that was attributed to the more selective nature of ozanamide for the S1P1, 1, and 5 um, receptors with the S1PR3 uh, not hit by this particular medication. The other thing that the ozanamide offers that saponamide does not 
is that there's no um, uh, recommended genetic test uh, that needs to be obtained beforehand. The saponamide startup process involves sending a genetic test to look to see how a, a particular patient may metabolize the medication, and the ultimate dosing is based on uh, the results of that CYP2CP genotype, whereas ozanamide, much like fungolamide, just has a standard dose that's approved for everybody. So I think in terms of effectiveness with ozanamide, we're looking at something that's very similar to fingolamide, um, although we don't have a head-to-head -head study to prove that. But we do have some evidence of improved tolerability, at least with respect to the potential for bradycardia and a, a simplicity of dosing uh, in comparison to saponamide. That's a very good point, John. And I'll mention the second generation S1P receptors were all supposed to have a shorter half-life and be able to be washed out much more rapidly than the parent fingolimod, which takes about six weeks up to eight weeks. But when ozanamod was really being studied at the FDA, they realized that it broke down to two metabolites that were quite active along with ozanamod. And the metabolites had much longer half-lives. So that actually took, they asked for more information on that, and that actually uh, took some more time to get that approved. Let's turn now to ponesimod. This is not approved yet. S1P receptor one is what they're touting, but it has completed a phase three trial. John, do you just want to give us your, your thoughts on, on that you know, trial and ponesimod? Sure. So um, much like the other S1P receptor drug trials, uh, panesimide was studied in comparison to an existing disease-modifying therapy, but in this case, they compared it to teraflunamide, which is another once-daily um, oral medication for MS. And panesimide, uh, which is highly selective for the S1PR1 receptor, was able to show superiority in reducing relapse rates by about 30% in comparison to teraflunamide. The uh, sort of summary of the trial also commented on decreased fatigue in this particular patient population in comparison to teraflunamide, and also superiority in reducing the number of new MR lesions seen in patients taking pacinamide as compared to teraflunamide. Who are the best patients for receiving S1P receptor modulator therapies? Who should not get them? Doctors Coyle and Rinker bring these new oral agents into the clinic and address these questions and more. Let's rejoin their discussion. Right. So the S1P receptor modulators, oral agents, uh, we have the uh, first-in-class uh, fingolimod, and then we have two second generations with a third possibly to join. So that's potentially four agents that we're going to have to choose how we use them uh, with somewhat different features, but still not all question answered. Is the PML risk going to be the same with the second generation uh, agents? Is, is the rebound uh, risk going to be um, the same? Uh, what exactly is their efficacy or impact within the CNS, which remains really a mystery? So John, let me ask, who are the patients that you think about in a positive way for an S1P receptor modulator? And are there any patients that you would avoid? Sure. So I think I'll, I'll speak first to the second 
part of your question, which is which patients would I advise that we steer clear of the S1P medications? So the um, going back to the approval of fingolimod, we had a pretty clear idea of certain um, clinical features of patients that, that would make these drugs potentially inappropriate. So an obvious one that we've already touched upon is anyone with existing cardiac disease, in particular, any cardiac conduction abnormalities on an EKG, just because the drugs with the potential to um, affect cardiac conduction could potentially put somebody in risk of heart failure or heart block that, of course, would make these drugs inappropriate. Other categories of patients that um, I would tend to direct away from the S1P category would be patients who uh, have certain medical conditions that may predispose to macular edema. Macular edema is an uncommon um, but potentially serious complication of S1P receptor modulator therapy. And patients in this category would be diabetics, uh, patients with a history of macular edema or other retinal disease you would likely want to steer clear of these medications for fear of exacerbating an existing macular edema or vision loss problem. And then a third category of patient that I would advise to steer clear of this category would be patients who have a history uh, of certain kinds of skin cancer. So in the early fingolimod trials, they found that there may be an increased risk of certain uh, skin cancer growths uh, in patients who are taking fingolimod. And so um, in our clinic, we routinely recommend patients have skin surveys done to look for evidence of uh, squamous cell, basal cell, and melanoma cancers out of an abundance of precaution, uh, just to make sure that we are not contributing to a more rapid um, evolution of those particular cancers. That said, um, there's a wealth of patients for whom these medications are very appropriate and I think one of the nice things about this particular category of medication is that it, it, it offers both um, a higher efficacy than the um, old injectable medications and some of the other oral medications, but it's, uh, it's easy to use, it's easy to take, and it's well-tolerated. So most of the patients who start these medications uh, have few to no side effects from the medication itself. The, the main thing that they may complain about is just the startup procedures, getting their eyes checked and their skin exam uh, before we start on the medication. So I think it fills a, a, an important sort of midpoint in the treatment armamentarium that we have of high efficacy, um, reasonably good safety and tolerability. And for that reason, I think it's slowly become one of the more important categories of medicine that we use in MS. So I think it's a good point to say that we think about the S1P receptor modulators as oral agents as having a little bit of a, a modest step up in uh, efficacy. And I would mention fingolimod was studied in the, in the first uh, completed phase three trial in pediatric MS against IM interferon beta 1A, where using interferon beta or acetate had been the standard of care simply because they were viewed as safe. They had no phase three trials. And fingolimod creamed IM interferon beta 1A in pediatric MS. And the interesting thing is if you go to the adults, you had fingolimod against IM interferon beta 1A. And the suppression of relapses was so much superior in pediatric MS. Now, of course, they have much more in the way of relapsing disease, but it indirectly makes the argument for, for treating young 
our patients as they age, I think there's a real concern that they may not respond as well. So it's really a plea to start treatment young and at an, at, and at an early age. A minority of individuals suffer from unusual infections with fingolimod, but it seems to be a small minority. And you need to really be thoughtful about the herpes, the varicella zoster, try to assure um, an immune response to that in our individuals. I'm intrigued by, some, by saponamide strictly because I'd like to see better studies documenting whether this S1P receptor has a, has a direct benefit in, in, in helping the neurodegenerative injury. I think that would be extremely important to know if it has a valid impact on, on progressive MS and, and, and the verbiage of the approval doesn't really indicate that. Um, ozanamide and ponesamide, I think we're gonna have to get experience with. Ozanamide has some interesting studies on gray matter, volume, impact, deep gray nuclei, volume, impact. Ponesamide has some interesting studies in fatigue. We'll see what they actually get in, in, in uh, the label. But I think these are reasonable uh, oral uh, options that have very reasonable efficacy, maybe more concerned in the elderly population to use them for some of the issues that John um, was talking about. So John, do you have any any final comments about S1P receptor modulators and your thoughts on this area? Um, I would just like to, uh, yeah, thank you for that Latin, nice summary of especially the pediatric benefits. But I think like, like you were just saying, you know, this class of medications, I think it, it's ideal for, for patients who are either having relatively active disease at the beginning of their multiple sclerosis um, or who may have experienced breakthrough disease on a more modestly effective medication. I think these drugs are a great choice uh, for that patient population and um, can be taken successfully for years and years. I myself have patients who've been on them since they first came out uh, and are still tolerating them very well with no apparent long-term adverse events. And so I think this, the, the long-term safety of this category of medication is slowly establishing itself um, as one of its important selling points as well. And that's a very good point. I would love to have a greater understanding on what might be the direct CNS impact because we know they get in and we know there are S1P receptors there, but that central nervous system is really a black box in this area. Uh, John, I want to th uh, thank you for all of your, your thoughtful comments on, on this area. Thank you, Pat. And thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS5 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. In our next podcast in this series, Eyes on the Horizon, Drs. Loveland and Burmell return to discuss emerging therapies for MS. That podcast can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS6. And you can find all of the podcasts in this six-part series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS.